Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. For those of you who have been a part of our podcast, you know that one of the things we like to do is before we bring on our guest co-host is to read the official bio of our guest co-host. And this is because we want people to know the accolades, the credentials that our guest co-host is going to be bringing to today's conversation. So help me to welcome, you know what to do, go to the chat, find those emojis, get ready to find those words of affirmation and appreciation, but I'm gonna read Amber's bio right now. Amber Thompson, as she goes by she, her pronouns, is the founder of D-Bias, an equity-focused monitoring and evaluation platform connecting business outcomes to social issues. She has 10 plus years designing systems with a focus on data accountability that helps create metrics to mitigate unfair practices. She believes the answers to companies' most complex problems exist within their community and change should center historically excluded people holistically. I love that. Should center historically excluded people holistically. Who are you centering in your your efforts, in your conversations? Her process to accelerate change includes using technology to automate data collection, generate root cause analyses, and monitor progress. She has helped organizations develop equity board policies, proactively address organizational challenges, engage marginalized communities, develop the processes to distribute resources fairly, and change policies and procedures to create equitable and just practices. Amber is a published activist and a public speaker on topics regarding equity and justice across all industries. She holds a bachelor's degree in behavior sociology from Point Park University and a master's degree in organization development and change from Penn State University. So y'all know what to do. Let's go to the chat, pull those emojis out, whatever you can do. But let's make sure that Amber feels very welcomed into this virtual community and space. We are so glad you are here. And uh, one of the first things that we often like for our colleagues to do, especially our guest co-hosts, is to, in their own way, just greet this audience. And specifically, what you have to share with us while you're greeting the audience in your own way is at least one thing that we do not know about you or we could not find out about you from reading your bio or even maybe your LinkedIn profile. So we need you to dig deep and help us to have a, a deeper connection to you, Amber. Welcome, my friend. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Nika, and thanks everyone for joining us this morning or wherever you're joining in the world. Um, one thing that you would not be able to find about me on social media is sushi is my favorite food. Um, I wouldn't call myself a foodie because I feel like other folks who say that, but I I enjoy a nice dish and um, some quality sushi from somewhere in the on a coast in the world. Um, literally brings me joy. And, and if there's any time in the world or any time in my life, my brain shuts off because it does not turn off. It's when I'm eating a great dish. Um, eating a great dish. That's a great dish. Brain is focused on food, food only. 
<laughs> I love that. I love that you're a foodie because I'm a foodie as well. But I have to tell you, even though I'm a foodie, I, I'm not a fan of sushi. And it's such a, um, a sophisticated dish that I wish I liked it, right? I'm like, I want to like sushi so bad, yeah. but I don't. But um, but I'm always admired by people who are also foodies and, and they just like so many different types of food. So if you like sushi, like our guest co-host today, Amber, then y'all know my favorite color is purple. So place like a purple heart into the chat, but let us know that you're tracking with her on the sushi deal. So that's good to know. Thank you so much for sharing. So I want to jump right in. And while I've shared your accolades and your credentials, I think it's so important for us to level set around your path into this work that you do. What was your background and, and why did you gravitate very specifically towards the, the niche work that you do in this broader space of equity and justice and inclusion? Um, I think whenever we talk about people's experiences, we tend to um, just focus on like their experiences as existing in the world and not just like their communities they came from. Um, I'm from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, small rural town, you know, steel town and uh, like in the middle of PA between Philly and Pittsburgh. And, um, you know, I had a great childhood, but, you know, I'd had a lot of struggles. And through that time, um, my family has always been the type of people, everyone works in social work in my family. It's some, regardless of what degree they ha have, they work in some form of social work. So I've always come from a social work background with family, people who want to help people in some capacity. Um, then once I became an adult and started going to college, I started to understand like how that environment started to become, I wouldn't say a barrier because I feel like that's very defeatist, but you know, the struggles were real. Um, mm -hmm. then I had a child with a disability, um, my daughter's epilepsy and an intellectual disability and navigating her worlds. Cause it's multiple things that I'm doing simultaneously mm -hmm. with her. Um, if I have all this education, all this support, I have a massive support for my dog, just for my one child, if mm -hmm. I'm struggling to do this. What is everyone else who doesn't have these resources doing? Um, so then, you know, I would say it just kind of propelled me into um, really honing in on systems thinking and um, and meshing my passions around social work and um, into the business. You know, what is actually helping things um, contribute to the struggles that I'm ex experiencing, my child's experiencing, my family's experiencing, or my friends are. So it, it's been a, it's been a journey. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah, no, thank you for vulnerably sharing so much of your story. It helps us to have perspective of how you like to show up to this work and yeah, I'm paying attention to the chat and one of our guests um, is saying that, yeah, as a special needs mom, I feel that so hard. And so your message is definitely resonating with some members of our audience today. So as I was reading your bio, the word equity and justice kept coming forth, right? And so I do want to level set a little bit in the beginning and help us to all just be centered on um, how those, those words kind of intersect. And so as we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, talk from your vantage point as to how those words intersect and specifically hone in on why you have felt the need to really be intentional about amplifying the equity and the justice piece. Um, I feel as though uh, D, whenever we say DEI, because most people think linearly, which means they yeah. think step one, step two, step mm -hmm. three, that they see it as step one, step two, step three. 
um, where like we have accessibility and justice. Um, and we have many more other intersections that we're not even including just in those DEIs that um, we get lost in really trying to understand what our objective is. And um, where I feel like, you know, D and I are focused on representation. Um, how can we get more representation? How can we, um, how can we help represent more people? Um, the, the equity, why I really focus on equity and justice is um, justice allows us through that lens to understand who we're doing on behalf. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just re representation of those folks. It's what are we doing? What are those folks saying we need to do? Um, and and uh, to me, equity is the the thing that allows the our chaotic world <laughs> to <laughs> be able to organize what we're doing to achieve um, justice on behalf of those folks. And we use diversity and inclusion as other metrics to to achieve it um but it's diversity and inclusion aren't the end goal um absolutely that's just that's where we're yeah. out no i love that and i am um, in total agreement that justice is the outcome of dei work period and specifically to just hone in on what you just shared amber is the equity piece that i think helps to show forth that level of justice in many ways and so um, I often find it appropriate to kind of intersect how all of these constructs really work together, because while they are distinct, you know, um, they certainly have, they certainly play a role in this broader conversation. So it's important for us to make sure that as people are tossing those words around, they kind of know where they fit. And quite honestly, if anyone in the space is doing this work without justice being the end goal, then is it truly the work? Is it truly the work, right? No. no so, yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. No, I'm with you. We're, we're answering a rhetorical question, right? No, it's not truly the work. Okay, so we know that um, there's a lot of talk right now around the economic downturn and um, all of the ways and, and the implications that that's going to bring to many different organizations. We're seeing it a lot in tech right now, but we're seeing it across you know different organizations in general. And so I want to get your thoughts and perspective on what do you say to some of those leaders who are having to make some really tough decisions right now as they're prioritizing where their resources should go and they have DEI as part of that consideration set on the list. What do you say to those individuals? Um, so how I'm processing what's going on in the downturn is something I think before this happened that I've always struggled with um, working in DEI roles, but also working under chief diversity officers. And, um, and I've worked in spaces where those CDOs were uh, specialized in their industry and they were a chief diversity officer of their industry. Mm -hmm. And I, I think in this downturn, um, DEI folks need to specialize in an industry or specialize in something in that in, in the work, right? And to me, it can't be culture-based. I, I think that's where we're struggling is that we're bringing so much cultural work to this that we're not processing um, in, our, in our industry what the culture, what's not happening in that culture or what culture is not happening in that industry. So if I was a, in the DEI space of manufacturing, I would list like manufacturing as the work that I've been doing 
versus like what I'm good at in regards to manufacturing, whether it's recruitment or whether it's operations. Um, we really need to understand that cultural work from that industry and specialization and not just be like a DEI person. And that to me wow. is really where the watering of our work is coming from. And, you know, the we're being scapegoated as diversity officers versus like a person who practices law or is an accountant with a DEI lens. That mm-hmm. That in this downturn, let's take time to really beef up the work we're trying to do and understand the injustices and the cultural work in our industries and, and come back with that lens versus just being a diversity person. Yeah, no, I, I want to lean into that. And I love that you brought that to the conversation. One of the things that I am always so delighted by is um, my visits during these conversations every Friday, I'm learning something new. And this is a perspective that I have not been in many conversations with other practitioners on. And I think that you're right. I mean, I even consider myself, I am, you know, our firm is more of um we're, we're DEI generalists in this sense. You know, there's so much under the broad umbrella of DEI. And so we have fashioned ourselves to, um, you know, market ourselves as we want to help organizations get to the next level of their journey, knowing that each person's journey is different, right? Each organization's journey is different based upon where they are in this broad continuum of DEI work. But what I'm hearing you say, and I have noticed this in general, just around the the, the DEI space, is that as it becomes more and more saturated, we do have to think a bit more intently about what is the point of differentiation that we're offering? What is that specialization that then allows us to be even more tailored and targeted and customized to drive towards solutions that are sustainable? And so I love that. And uh, we often have a lot of people that will join these conversations And by the way, we are also live on LinkedIn, so I want to acknowledge that audience as well. And they're looking to break into this DEI space, right? They're looking to find their path. And so um, I think this is a great reminder um, to consider, you know, what specifically within within this broad work do you want to um, brand yourself as? And do you want to carve out that very specific niche? So, and I feel like you've done that for yourself, just within the accountability work and the evaluations and the metrics. And so... Do you mind kind of elaborating from your perspective how that fits your situation? Yeah, so um, a lot of, even with my undergrad and what I did in grad school, a lot of the work I've been doing was measuring, um, but I would say in a non-traditional sense that I thought was normal. I'm not (laughs) thinking like, oh, like qualitative, I'm learning about qualitative data in high school. Why wouldn't qualitative data be real data in grad school or in the real world or in research, you know? And I think like when we're talking about this downturn where I came in, I said, this is what I want to do. I can't come in here generalizing as a consultant. Um, I don't want to, I don't have the capacity to. Um, And then it also allowed me to be able to partner with other folks that do trainings and coaching, you know, things that I don't really like to do, but also aren't my strengths. I do them to offer for my clients and the work that I'm doing. Cause when I, when I'm passionate at it, I am good at it, but I can now, you know, I can focus on the metrics where a lot of folks struggle. I can focus on the analysis where a lot of folks struggle and I can bring other colleagues into the work that I'm doing and build a team of other practitioners and consultants who can also just focus on their niches. Um, 
mm-hmm. and then we can build like that superpower right uh it's not a superpower but it feels it feels powerful to know that (laughs) you know I can rely on one of my colleagues Calista who does like a ton of great trainings and she can rely on me to make sure her trainings go beyond that five hours that she's spending with those folks or my colleague who does coaching same thing like she knows well if I'm doing coaching Amber's monitoring and evaluating um what we're trying to get this uh team to do so that to me is is where in this downturn we need to change our our models of working together um and change our models of the type of work we're bringing we're doing um to to really be better at it and get further with it I so agree. And, you know, going back to the point of how this space is, is very heavily saturated right now. Um, you know, there's some pluses and some, and some minuses to that if you were to really just take inventory. But one of the things I will say from a, 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 a pro perspective about that is if people are doing exactly what you're talking about, Amber, and they're finding their very specific path and niche where they really can become specialized, I do believe that that's an opportunity for us to deepen the collective output of the work, right? And so I'm loving this. And uh, it reminds me of conversations that I've seen over the past several months around a little bit of criticism that um, certain DEI practitioners are not doing the work effective enough based upon someone's perception, right? And and part of what I, I want to call call in for those who think that way is there's too much work to be done. I think there's a place for all of us. I really do. But I think that the way to really optimize that place for all of us is to do exactly what you said. How can we collaborate and to become much, much better informed about what are your specialties within this broad work? Because there are a lot of them, right? And then um, create those uh, uh, alliances. And so I am, I'm, I'm loving this conversation. So thank you so much for giving us a chance to kind of dig into this. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about the downturn and, you know, it's not like this is the first time that we've gone through this. Of course, we had the the recession back in, you know, 2008. What did that last recession tell us about DEI's importance? You know, in the last recession, in in comparison to now, the type of awareness we had have now compared to then, mm-hmm. um, I do. I also think companies handled the last recession better <laughs> than this recession. So if we're going to talk about what DEI told us then, it was Mm -hmm. like we, that focus, that heavy focus on one person owning DEI is not a, it's not sustainable. It doesn't work because now Mm -hmm. we've, we've moved to that model. We have companies handling it worse. And just like you said, a lot of folks are putting this pressure on DEI, um, practitioners, consultants, ICs, and internally and externally. That's because we've been scapegoated based on this business model. And what we last, and and not to say there weren't diversity officers, and there were in very large corporations like Shell or Microsoft, Mm -hmm. um, but they also had like 100 people teams. Like they they processed DEI as an enterprise um uh, a product versus like a, a vertical um, department. Mm-hmm. So I think what, what that last downturn told us was we cannot have diversity as a silo 
we need to mm-hmm. have it. Every person needs to be a chief diversity yes. officer. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Yes. This work belongs to all of us. I say that all the time. And I love that you mentioned that because you're right. The beauty about um, DEI is that it is horizontal. It's not vertical. And so, yeah, I, I, I would love the day when um, everyone's job description will have something permanently as part of this picture that's related to owning and being accountable for that work. It doesn't matter what your title is, what position, your tenure, and how long. It doesn't matter. It belongs to all of us. And so I, I appreciate that. Now, you know, again, I want to stay here a little bit longer on this economic downturn and not that I'm trying to talk it up because there are some people that are of the persuasion. The media is just blowing this out of proportion. Really, there's not a recession that's coming. But nonetheless, we have seen already where a lot of DEI practitioners and the DEI budgets have already started to be, be get cut, right? And so what can chief diversity officers or other equivalent, you know, titles um, for that position do to continue effectively the DEI work? when their budget does get cut? Because there are some people that are like, I love what I do. I'm not in a position where I just want to leave because they're cut my budget. But what can I do? Do I just walk away defeated? Or is there some level of hope in the interim that I could still make some impact? I think there is a level of hope. It's not going to be in the pockets or the corners of your company that you were used to it. I think this is an external um, opportunity for um, folks to, you know, we need data period, right? We need to collect data outside of our data analyst teams and our HR departments also. Um, and we need to identify externally. Um, this needs to be an internal external change. If you are looking at your team dwindling, you need to get information from outside of your organization. Um, you're at, to me, you're losing allies in that, in that type of change. You're losing people support around you. You might have your chief diversity officer groups, which is cool, but also the the chief diversity officers need to be connected to the root grassroots organizations that are also trying to drive the change in your company as well. And whether that's something you do, you know, on the sneak tip or something you do out in the open, that's something we need to be doing. Um, And you're not going to, you, we have to connect what's happening at the grassroots to what's happening in, in the ivory tower. Mm-hmm. I love that. And, and it also amplifies the need to um, extend the work in very um, intentional ways, whether it's formal or informal, to others to be able to engage. One of the things that come to mind for me is I recall working with um, a large organization who had um you know, BRGs, ERGs, employee resource groups, business resource groups. And part of what they wanted to do in order to take that body of work to the next level is, okay, we're now have been able to impact some really successful change internally, but how can we now have externally impact through this? And what we ended up in WC supporting them with is developing this plan whereby they connected with other large global brands in the same vicinity. And then all of their ERG leaders and, and participants kind of came together. And it was now more of this community type you know, effort and message of the importance. And I just thought that was so beautiful. And so I love kind of the grassroots, you know, um, fact that you brought to the conversation. And sometimes I think that we feel like everything has to be all buttoned up and well packaged. And sometimes that can be a hindrance because it keeps us from taking the first step. You know, I've had people to say, where do I start, Dr. White? Where do I start? And sometimes I'm just like, you know what, just start. 
And then yeah. along the way, sometimes you'll be able to figure out, okay, because there's not really a one size fits all approach. We know that. Mm-hmm. And it certainly takes us being brave enough to be willing to make mistakes and then learn from that and correct it. So I'm loving all of this. Have you seen some ways, Amber, that um, organizations have been able to effectively build collective action externally outside of their organizations? Um, That's a great question. And before this, I probably would have said no. Uh, (laughs) um, But honestly, I've been doing some work with B-Lab and benefit corporations. And I think that business, there are, I mean, with my background in equity and justice, I want to preface this. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done in regards to benefit corporations. Uh, but that model, um, in some, in some states have this, some states don't. In that model, they're intentional around getting the credit for that connection from corporate to grassroots. So a lot of those organizations like Dr. Myers or um, Nespresso, they're doing work in communities to inform their point system um, regarding that benefit corporation title. Mm -hmm. So I want to say it's a model that I can see the, the potential um, and there are there are companies that are doing um, changing their hiring practices drastically where it's first come first serve. Um, there are models where their their benefits are supporting the gaps in like their struggles to get to work or maintain work or be promoted in work. Um, there are models where they're giving them additional money on top of their paychecks to help them, yeah. you know, buy a car, buy a house, those things, right? To to close the racial wealth gap. There, mm-hmm. there are models I see the potential. I also see like where they're not achieving what they're going out to achieve because it's not through a justice lens. Yeah. Um, but the but I do say models like um, the benefit corporations like Ben and Jerry's. Um, in Patagonia and, you know, those companies, they do have uh, an intentionality to be in the community while they're, um, you know, still participating in capitalism. Yeah. Um, And and I see the potential. No, those are some great examples, um, you know, um, and, you know, so the mention of B Corp as part of um, an example, I think is is a really good one. yeah, and you mentioned sometimes that they are operating with, um, they're not always operating with the justice lens, and that ends up having an adverse effect for those brands and those organizations because it comes across as very performative, and we know that that is, um, is something that you know, those who are part of marginalized communities can gravitate to immediately, right? And we're even seeing a visceral reaction to it. So I do think that is critically important for those organizations to think more intently. But yeah, you gave us lots of examples. And I'm glad because sometimes the best way to learn is for us to make it plain. Let's let's provide some for instances so people can kind of gravitate to. Yeah. So we're going to be shifting in a little bit to take some questions from the audience. I want to go ahead and give you a heads up about that. And the way we like to do that here on Intentional Conversations podcast is invite you to um, use the raise hand feature that lets us know that you would like to be called upon. We will spotlight you if your camera is on and will allow you to unmute yourself and share your question or comments. Um, but if you also just you know desire to have your question presented on your behalf, you can place it into the chat and we will make sure that we present that on your behalf. And so I'm going to um, go forward 
forward with a few additional questions while maybe this audience is thinking about perhaps what they would like to engage you in on, Amber. So um, staying with this, you know, the importance of the intersection of activism, justice, and advocacy to this broad DEI work, why is it necessary for like DEI practitioners to make those connections? And what are some of the ways that you've seen that have been strong strategies for doing that effectively? Um, I, I think it's important. It takes a level of thinking that we have to do to mm -hmm. change what needs to happen. These folks are researching specifically on the issues that we're generalized on, right? They yeah. might be focusing on, um, issues of accessibility, um, or issues regarding, um, trans identities in, in HR practices, right? Or they may be talking about gender issues within operations. They're literally focused, hyper-focused. I wouldn't even say focused. They're hyper-focused on what needs to change and what the outcome will be. You already know what you need to measure. You already yeah. know who you're targeting and what you're targeting. This and, and my colleagues in Europe where, you know, a lot of data can't be collected, folks ask me in the global work that I did, how did I do that? I worked with those people, the people who were hyper-focused, who were collecting right. data, who, you know, I don't need to collect it. I, could, I couldn't collect it anyway. But you know who I could rely on? The folks who are like, I need to change my experience with your industry or your company. And here's what I'm demanding of you. And now I know who, who I need to target. Now I know what the, the metrics are. And now they're even monitoring it. So it, it just yeah. takes a level of work off of our shoulders if we rely on folks outside of our companies. No, absolutely. I also think going back to your grassroots point that, you know, one important way is that internal DEI leaders can connect the organizational cultural work of equity to activism and advocacy is to implement, you know, programs like uh, mentoring and sponsorships, right? I mean, when we think about how does justice show forth within the workplace, it is all about centering equity and doing it in a way that really moves the needle. And so we can't forget about some of those other um, you know, maybe less um, considered avenues such as like, you know, mentoring. And sometimes organizations may not have the wherewithal to create a formal mentoring program, but that doesn't mean that individuals who are allies of this work and really do believe in it can't on their own, you know, extend themselves as a coach, as a mentor, as someone that is providing insight that could help someone with their upward mobility, you know, endeavors. And so what would you like to share related to that, Amber, if anything? Um, in regards to equity, where it really differentiates from um, the D the DNI or the accessibility or even justice is the policy yeah. work, right? Yes, we we rely on folks to self-report or self-regulate. We're not we are not going. I'm sorry that we do not live in that world where empathy <laughs> will ever move the needle. It's not. We're and yeah. most identity. You can't, and most white folks can't even be empathetic with me. The, the definition empathy has a it's a thrill thing within psychology. Yeah. Things, it right? is so yeah. to, to be it's like words matter. Um mm -hmm. but it, the policy making that we need to enact outside of our organizations and starting with our boards needs to say like 
hey, we need mentoring and sponsorship. We also need to build this into our personnel policy that we need to build it into our job descriptions. We need to build this into um, a mechanism that we're monitoring annually at our board level. Who have you mentored? How have those mentees moved up in the companies? Um, how have those mentees, like uh, their economics changed or their networks changed? We, we need to create that policy um, and the process to implement the policy beyond mm. just saying, this is a great idea, let's do this. No, this is actually part of our business model. And for us to be successful in what we're doing, we need to also mentor people to um, stay in our company. And we need to sponsor people to, to make our employees and our networks healthier. That, that is what we need to, to take Period. that personality. Yeah, yeah. Yes, no. I mean, the main- bottom up. Yeah, the main takeaway here is that policy drives equity. And, you know, without it, sometimes we go at this work thinking that just changing hearts and minds is going to, in and of itself, change the world. And that's part of it. But my thing is, is that I would rather someone to be following certain behaviors that can yield that outcome yes. rather than just have the mindset, but not following the behaviors that can yield that outcome. Exactly. So, yes. This work cannot exist without that. And so, uh, again, I just continue to appreciate how that message is being amplified in our conversations today. So I'm not seeing any hands raised so far, and I am checking the chat. No questions there, but keep, but keep thinking on them because you do have still time. Um, so I'm going to talk about technology now. I know that technology finds its way into a lot of the work that you do in terms of helping organizations to really be more effective at organizational change. And so talk a little bit about how technology strengthens organizational change. Um, so in regards to the world we're moving towards, data is the capital. Um, yeah. And I'm not sure how else to get that across. Um, but the only way to capture data is through technology. Um, yeah. You can do it, the tried and true method of, you know, writing and notes and transcription. Um, but of all of those things to build our capacity as practitioners, we should be using technology. Um, and when we're talking about the work and being tired and and um, exhausted at the end of the day, a lot of this work could be done by technology and we people still have to be part of our, our work in the DEI okay. space. We cannot rely solely on technology if we can't, if you can't tell, but we could be automating a lot of different things. We could be relying on technology to support our analyses. Um, that costs money. I'm not gonna lie, I spend a lot of money building uh, you know, my algorithms and predictive analyses, but Essentially, technology allows me to do more work. Like when you're talking about deepening, um, that deepening happens because now I've been able to offload um, the way the organizations I work with collect data. Um, I've been able to build my capacity and longevity of my contracts because I don't have to be there anymore to monitor and those folks can just rely on coaching. Now it's not just project based. It doesn't start when a check comes and it doesn't end when the check when the check doesn't have any money anymore. We for us to move the needle, we need to move out of a project based change model. Um, and now technology is allowing us to do that. Um, so yeah, auto automate whatever you can <laughs> um, <laughs> and and do what you need to do by hand and mouth. 
um, but really lean into um, the the different type of tech uh, subscriptions that we can purchase to change the work that we're doing. Yeah, no, automations are are really becoming a significant game changer for a lot of organizations. I, I also think that there's, um, and I'm sure you hear a lot about this, but there's um, some criticism that is taking away the work. So I love how you brought to the conversation that that's just one piece of it. You still need the coaching. You still need people actually socializing around what all this means and how to process it and how to directly apply it to the workspaces that they belong to. So, Amber, I want you to give us a little bit of an additional understanding of, um, of your um, equity-focused monitoring and evaluation platform. Give us a little bit of additional insight into that. What are you monitoring exactly, and what can you share? <laughs> Basically, where, where I'm seeing a, a gap is the actual under, when we're talking about justice, the amount of work I've done to build a justice lens and through my traditional education and then through my non-traditional education with activism and organizing um oh, most folks are not going through that that's it's not happening and that is where like that that humanistic approach that it fails because there's so much education um just like in the finance industry that folks don't have the capacity or the brain with to yeah. be able to capture every other industry that they may be intersecting as a DEI person um, so the, the way I'm approaching it is by building, um, like a data lake of everything, right? We have the 1619 project. Imagine the 1619 project at in 27 different industries, right? <laughs> and we, that is where technology, where I'm utilizing technology. I'm not going to hold all of this information. I have a ton of information in my head, um, but mm -hmm. to be able to pull that out in the moment or, you know, to, to, and I like fast change and be able to pull that out in a short time period that I'm working with a company is not possible, but with technology it is. So what I've just built was, is a, a, an analysis of, um, uh, uh, people historically excluded people and centering mm -hmm. them and our current data models, why algorithms are killing us is because they they the way that they rely on the outliers and cleaning out outliers in our data, the things that don't happen often, are our experiences. Yeah, our yeah. small numbers. Our experiences are cleaned in the building of algorithms and data. We need a model that we need a statistical model that doesn't do that, and we're that's what I'm building. <laughs> No, I love that. That is that is amazing. And um, I, I, I'm hoping that, you know, by you sharing today, we're going to be able to get the word out around your, your specialty to to others that can certainly gain benefit from from that. You know, it's, it amazes me how uh, even large organizations, they don't even collect data. You know, I mean, so the let's get to like the bare basic minimum of just collecting the data. Let's understand what is the makeup. Well, we really don't know. We think it's this. We think it's that. So you don't really collect it. And so um, for those organizations that may not quite yet be ready for the real in-depth, um, you know, evaluation and tracking that, that you can provide, what, what are some just one to two bare minimum practices that you will say uh, are, are critical for them to have data that can inform a lot of their strategic decisions that can, you know, be able to create greater equity and, and justice within the workplace. Build a policy at your board level that, it, that your exit interview data has to be captured and 
whatever issues come out have to be rectified within 18 months. Mm. Yeah. That to me, the, the exit interview is the easiest data point and the one that you probably could build trust in getting before any other piece of data that you can capture in your organization. People yeah. are going to be mad when they're coming out. And if you built that, if built that trust before and say like, we're writing a policy to take your information to implement this um, back into the organization to make changes. Um, and then those folks who are working there or can see that you're going to retain other folks too. Um, oh, absolutely. Easiest. And, and yeah. policy writing is not hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I like that. And I like the fact that you went straight up to the board level. You know, we're, we're not going to play. We're going to go straight up to, you know, especially because many of those boards are governing bodies. Yes, they're setting the strategic direction. And so, yeah, start there. Um I love that. And would you say, Amber, that maybe the same could apply to stay interviews? You know, I'm a big fan of stay interviews as well. I feel like the exit interviews, they certainly give us some good intel, but at that point, people are exiting, right? And so it it will allow you to maybe implement some changes for those that are still there. But I also think that the intentionality of, you know, talking to the folks that you want to retain and understanding what what changes maybe need to be considered, that that also is a plus. So would you would you recommend a similar approach for stay interviews? Yeah, and I I want to bring stay interviews to back to companies not even collecting data and possibly yeah. why stay interviews um, without that policy are performative. Um, yeah. So without I don't want to throw any companies under the bus, but essentially uh, people are intentionally not collecting the data. And a state interview would be against that intentionality of not collecting the data. So, I mean, that if we look at what is it, Exxon or Chevron, whichever one came out and they knew in the 70s, they already, they had down to, because of statistics, they had down to a number, what today would look like because of their industry, they were able to maintain and encapsulate that data and protect it from getting out to whatever. And because of the way our information is siloed internally and externally, um, a lot of activists couldn't prove or show or or say they know, right? Yeah. When, to me, the state, the state interview would have identified the people who were already against them intentionally keeping this information from the organization or from the, the community at large. Um, so yeah. I would say state interviews, yes, but you're not going to get the trust and the buy-in if there isn't a policy to say, yeah, if you tell us something in this interview, um, you also have access to the change that we are making from this. You also can provide input because we developed this or we've identified this because of your your feedback. Um, mm-hmm. And there has to be some level of anonymity because there's a there's a major power dynamic. Also, a huge part of equity folks ignore is right. the power imbalance that we need to reconstruct or reconfigure. Um, there's a major power imbalance in a state a state interview without policy. Um, right. You know, so th- those are those are my thoughts. I love state interviews. Um, I like building that in as an equity policy to say here is the feedback loops and the learning loops. And here's how we collect and evaluate what we're doing quarterly or monthly to inform that. So it's less of like a gotcha moment and more of like this yeah. is how the organization mo- is modeling. 
Yeah, of course. Now those feedback loops are so critical. And um, if you're if you're collecting this data, you have no plans to do anything with it, then you you that in and of itself is going to create this mass exodus, right? Because it's going to continue to say to people time and time again, you know, you're collecting this to be performative, but you really don't have any intentions of doing anything with it. So that's where the policy can help close that gap and build up that credibility. You know, I find that a lot of organizations very intentionally do not collect data. And it's because oftentimes, one, is they are afraid of the data, almost as though I know we aren't performing at a level where we should. And so therefore, we don't want to have the proof, right? And so I always say, don't be afraid of the data. You know, the data doesn't necessarily mean that immediately overnight, you're going to have to change all the things and all the ways that everybody has requested. You know, these things take time, but it is a great show of transparency, a great show of of desire to center the voices of the individuals that are being impacted by your policies or the lack thereof. Right. So, um, yeah, so I, I so appreciate where this conversation is going. Okay, so we have a question in the chat, Amber. The question is, how can D&I be a priority for organizations that have other big issues to deal with? Oh, so that's like the whole competing priorities. What advice would you give to those who are trying to identify and work with other DEI advocates at your organization? I think I kind of ran two questions in together, but so I'll go back and start with the first one. <laughs> uh, what can DEI, um, how can DEI be a priority for organizations that have other big issues to deal with, other competing priorities? I hear that a lot. We're going through a big org change. We're rebranding right now. We have this other assessment that's going on. We just can't give time to us. What, what do you say to that, Amber? This is where equity comes in and why DNI, like as a rep- as a tool for representation that it's looked at upon, not saying that's what it is, but that's definitely how it's utilized. Equity uh, allows you to look at that rebrand as to why you're rebranding. Equity looks at, <laughs> looks at your organization as a why you're reorganizing, right? And equity says, this is what you need to put in to not have to do this again. Or if you do it again, it's less of a punitive and reactive, and it's more proactive because now your data is telling you this is coming. Let's change for the better, um, so it, the, to me, that is always going to trump the priorities. Equity is literally the process of you going through your reorganization because you found issues, but the problem is our reaction. These are reactionary issues. Had you instituted some equity policy in, in the anticipation of, um, issues in your industry through a justice lens, you would already have seen that these things were coming because culturally um, our world is changing and not just through race, we have age, we have uh, our cities growing and our suburbs shrinking. We have our infrastructure changing. We have mobility issues growing. Like there's a lot of things changing that equity should be a priority. So you don't have to do these things reactionary. So appreciate that. That was really rich. And um, it goes back to, again, just the acknowledgement that, you know, equity is is horizontal. It is not vertical. So whatever it is that you're trying to do, whatever those competing priorities are, equity should be in the center of it. So why are we waiting and putting this as its own separate kind of entity off to the side? And I think that is a great way to help organizations to realize that putting it off is uh, they need to check kind of the mindset around how they're viewing it, right? So yeah, that is that is spot on. Um, the other half of that question, which probably was a separate one, was what advice would you give to those who are trying to identify and work with other DEI advocates at you know 
their organization? Um, there, there needs to be a value alignment across organizations, but more importantly, when folks come together on behalf of an affinity, and I say an affinity, even though a DEI person may be on behalf of multiple affinities, you are focused on marginalized people. Um, there needs to be a value alignment in, in building those relationships. Um, if I'm, and this was something that I run into constantly, even today, I have a different value alignment to a lot of folks in the work that I'm doing that we need to balance and we need to identify from the gate. So I know if I'm coming in, oh, this person I'm working with, it only cares about making money. So mm -hmm. this is the relationship that they have to this work. And I only come in making sure it's not only about making money. So this is the value of relationship that I have. So we need to be able to not mesh because I don't think a person making only money is a good enmeshment, but it's a very good perspective to understand how you're selling other parts of your work um, that aren't focused on capitalism. So we need, we've come to an understanding and our value alignment to say, this is what we're here for. And regardless if you're here, if you're here to just make money, fine, we're here to make money. That's not a space I'm going to really involve myself in. Um, but at least I know coming in, that's what's happening. And I, it, and that needs to happen with all DEI folks. There needs to be a value alignment and a realignment after every major project, after every major issue, um, yeah. there needs to be an alignment that happens for people to know where they're coming from. That is so good. Values alignment. And, and there, when we talk about it from an internal perspective within organizations, there are a lot of leaders who will um, verbalize that, yes, this work is important. We need to do this work. But until that values alignment conversation takes place, you can guarantee that there's still there's a good bit of divergence, right? Because what that looks like to one leader can be vastly different from what that looks like to the next leader. So creating those organizational guiding principles around how are we at the organizational level going to value this work and what does that look like is so important. So I'm glad you brought that up. I'm trying to squeeze in as many questions as possible. So Lisa White, who is here with us today. Thank you, Lisa. Her question is, what are some policy changes that you have recommended as a result of the data from stay interviews? Um, I don't particularly call them stay interviews. The way that I build my equity policies is we're monitoring or we're evaluating our programs and our services um, based on how often change is happening in those. And what the state interview looks like in that process is um, a, great, a great example. Something happens around accessibility constantly. It's an, a, an issue of accessibility for most times around pro programs and services, right? So in that, in that state interview, we'll call it a state interview, but in that evaluation of the program, at the end of that cycle, whenever it's closed out or it's getting ready to ramp up again, there's a pause where the team is evaluating their performance on that, or they're evaluating the organization's performance on it, which is really what I recommend. Um, the, the information that comes out of that is saying, this is how the organization supported me. This is how my team supported me. This is how my leader supported me. This is how I, I feel like I could have done better if I had these things. Um, these are a lot of these things become accessibility issues to say, I, I have medicine and I've learned that I can't meet after 5 p.m. 
um, or um, what's another issue of accessibility that came up? Um, understanding information delivered virtually. Um, that has been a, a very huge one is a lot of people can't see the screens, right? So we need to have a lot of information and it's agenda planning, right? But a lot of the information provided on during uh, virtual meetings is not accessible. Um, in regards to uh, the work itself, like how that goes back into a policy. So accessibility, I built into a policy already. So we're already identifying these things that we need to be changing and logging it so we can expand it from beyond that situation across the organization. Um, a, a policy that goes back to the top is codifying um, pay salary, right? I feel mm -hmm. like this is how much work we all provided this. We should be equally paid at this. So I'm working an organization to codify their, uh, some of the things that they want to do to flatten their, their decision-making models and mm -hmm. spread that work across. That came out of um, the evaluations of their programs. The Some folks are saying we're doing this more. Some folks are saying we're doing this more. Well, we all are sharing the work. <laughs> I'll be sharing yeah. the benefits of this. So that's that's a great one that has come out. No, some awesome, awesome examples. We are we're running out of time. We're getting to the top of the hour, but this has been such a rich conversation. There's some other questions in the chat, but I hope that for those of you who maybe did not get your question answered, um, we did share all of Amber's information that you will reach out to her, follow her work. Um, I want to give you the last 60 seconds to close this out and in whatever way that feels appropriate. But I do hope that maybe you could give us a little bit of your fellowship so that we can know what that's about and, and what, what potentially we have to look forward to. Thank you for being here today, Amber. Go for it. No, thank you, Nika. So I am going to be announcing an engineering fellowship with my organization. We'll be doing three a year. What we're trying to do is develop better um, technologists in our growing world. Um, I'll also be offering, we have not developed our services and products yet. I'll be announcing that next week. Um, where you can just sign up and get an equity policy for your organization and use our technology to evaluate and monitor so you can grow and learn versus waiting till you learn to get the change. I saw a question regarding how would you recommend education? We should be working while we're educating. Um, and that's my, my model is not wait, just like you said, just get started. Um, let's get started, but let's get started in a way that we're informing our steps along the way. Um, so we'll be announcing those things. Follow me on LinkedIn, follow me on social media. I'm, I'm accessible. I do take time to respond, not going to lie, but I do respond to my LinkedIn DMs. Um, so please message me if you have anything else. I love it. Working while educating. I love it. I love it. Amber, thank you so much. We're grateful that you said yes to our invitation. I do hope that each of you who have joined us today will take advantage of connecting with Amber and all the many ways that we've shared into the chat. Um, have a wonderful weekend and hopefully we'll see you all again next Friday. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Thank you. Bye.